Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Searching for Political Identity. I am your host, Brian Eskow, and this is episode 131. I am so humbled and honored to have Mike Termott waiting for me in the virtual green room. This is a man who's running for president as a libertarian. It's the second time he's joined me, and I'm really looking forward to talking with him about current events and libertarianism in general. So to set up our conversation, let me just say to you, the audience, you know my deal at this point. I'm searching for political identity, which of course also means that I'm searching for truth. And I found along the way that it's kind of hard, and maybe it's just me, but I find like it's kind of hard to have a sense of objective reality today. Maybe it's because of the internet, maybe it's because of the lack of religious institutions in our society, but it's tough being an American citizen, I think. So all the more reason why I respect and admire thought leaders, and Mike is certainly one of them. So to just tee up our conversation, I want to highlight what I consider to be the attractiveness of libertarianism. And here I am searching for political identity, right? Coming off studying critical race theory in law school and having been uh, thrown for a loop by that. And libertarianism says civil liberties are paramount, that if you just allow people to do what they want, as long as they don't harm you, the non-aggression principle, that's the best way to organize society, that we need to reduce the state to as small of a footprint as possible. And there's a huge debate in libertarianism, anarchy versus minarchism. Okay, whatever. But the idea also that everyone is the master of their own destiny. And this feeds into the self-help mindset of it's all on you. No one's coming to save you. The state's not coming to save you. And so you need to save yourself. Uh, the idea that no one needs special treatment, tying that into the idea of that taxation is theft. Nobody needs to steal from each other. And that's what libertarians do consider taxation to be, theft. Um, so these are very attractive messages. And also this incredibly strong and potent anti-war message, which I definitely want to talk to with Mike, given the current events. And lastly, what I have written down here about libertarianism is this notion that it wasn't just the best way to organized society in the past. It's not just the best right now, but in the future with technology, it's going to be the best mode to guarantee our safety and security moving forward. So that's just kind of stuff that I have on the top of my mind. But, and I'll bring Mike on here in a second, but there's so much news to get to, whether it's, does RFK make sense as a libertarian candidate? Should this U.S. steel deal be, you know, scrutinized and stopped? So, Without further ado, let me bring on Mike Termott, and let's get this conversation going. Sarah, welcome on. Brian, it's a great joy to uh, be with you, uh, particularly for the second time, particularly to talk about libertarianism, particularly because you're right, there is so much in the news that uh, that is worth uh, discussion and from a number of different angles. So, yeah. Uh, so where really do you want to start? Do you want to start with some libertarian philosophy? Do you want to spend a minute or two on that? Or do you want to dig right into this RFK thing and whether or not it makes sense for him to be a libertarian? You choose. I'm okay to uh, start in with current events because I think it'll reveal how we feel about libertarianism. RFK is an interesting place to start. You, know, you, you had mentioned one of the debates within libertarianism, minarchism versus anarchism. And, and that is an important discussion. Although I must say that whether you're a minarchist or an anarchist, which is to say whether you believe in a very, very small government or that the world would be better off without any government at all, that is a debate that does not uh, typically pinch 
when it comes to developing current policy, right? Even if we are all headed uh, toward anarchism, you're going to have to pass through minarchism on the way as a mm -hmm. practical matter in the United States or anywhere else around the world. This is, uh, from the libertarian point of view, probably a shame, right? It's really unfortunate that that debate does not have a great deal of relevance to today's world in which we are just so far away from even a constitutional republic at this point, mm -hmm. much less a minarchist world in which we need to worry about whether we can eliminate the last vestiges of government or, or not. We have so far away from that. Yeah. But it is interesting that there's another debate that I think that is uh, that I think is very important. And that is if you are anti-state, right, as it currently uh, is incarnated, if you just don't like the way our federal government works, if you don't like the way our state government works, if you don't like the way your community government works, does that mean that you're a libertarian? And I would argue not necessarily so. We as libertarians do hold in great skepticism everything about government. Absolutely true. And I thought that your introduction was spot on. But I don't think it's enough in the sense that we do believe that we need to stand up for each other's rights, not just for our own. And so in that sense, uh, to the extent to which there is a superstructure, to the extent to which there is a government, it does have a role. And that role is looking out for our uh, rights, not imposing on us some external philosophy. And I think that this is the root difference between a libertarian and, and Robert Kennedy Jr. In other words, I, I believe, and uh, I don't think he would argue with this, although I'll be on a panel with him in California in a couple of weeks, and I'll have the opportunity to ask him. I, I believe that he would agree that at his core, he is a good government type of guy. He wishes the government would work better. Mm -hmm. uh, not that it would necessarily be eliminated or even wound down to its bare, bare minimum. And I cite as examples, first of all, his, uh, his wish that we had gun control law in the United States is, is a leading example. Uh, he believes that the world would be better off if there were serious uh, restrictions on your ability to carry, to carry openly or to carry concealed what types of weapons, you know, this sort of thing. And uh, setting aside for a moment the debate in which he would be actually objectively incorrect that that would make the world better mm -hmm. off, he doesn't seem terribly held back by the idea that individuals have rights, uh, including uh, the right to carry, and that it's not the, really the government's business. Setting aside the whole issue of, you know, whether he's right or wrong about making the world a better place. And I would also cite uh, the, the fact that when it comes to corporate regulation, right, he's all about improving the way businesses are regulated in the United States, particularly at the federal level. He certainly seems to want to disentangle corporate leadership from, from government leadership. And in, in that sense, he agrees wholeheartedly with how we feel as libertarians that mm -hmm. 
that's where a, a tremendous amount of uh, corruption comes from. That is the road to fascism when when government officials are able to leverage control over corporations. So, you know, that makes sense. You want to disentangle that. But whereas a libertarian would want to disentangle that so that corporations could exert control over themselves so that they could behave in a way that was best suited to their role in society, Robert Kennedy Jr. would prefer that that disentanglement take place so that the government could do a more effective job in telling corporations how to behave. Right. That's a very, very uh, different look. Similarly, I would cite his interest in uh, allowing certain nations, uh, primarily the United States government, to impose uh, its will around the world uh, by force. And that is just not something that the United States uh, should find in its own interest. It's not something that people around the world should find in their interest. Uh, it is true that he has taken anti-war positions, but a libertarian would, in a full-throated fashion, tell you that we need to pull back the way that we project military hegemony in all of its forms around the world, including aid to other nations, that each nation needs to pursue what it views as uh, foreign policy in its own interests, and the United States needs to disentangle itself from from those other other governments. You know, it's so interesting. The background that I come from with my progressive father and uncles, my uncle, Richard R.J. Eska, is an amazing guy, amazing um, thought leader on the progressive side, was Bernie Sanders' third hire in 2016 as a speechwriter. They come, you know, what they taught me growing up was that there's a moral duty uh, with that the rich or the people with means have to help the poor. And libertarians obviously don't share that view. Okay, not through taxation, at least. Maybe there's a moral private duty. But it's interesting when you talk about the relationship between corporate power and government, all sides would agree, presumably, that you don't want an unhealthy alliance between corporate power and government power, but it's just a difference about what you do after you disentangle them. So speaking of that issue, what's your take on this steel issue with U.S. Steel? Robert Kennedy, not to be obsessed with him by any means, but I just saw a headline today that he supports blocking that. What would you do as president in this situation? I don't think the government has a, a role. I don't, uh, I'm slightly disadvantaged. I heard that he said something, but I haven't said exactly what it is. I haven't read exactly what he said. So I don't want to accidentally. It was, I, yeah. To paraphrase, it was just, I would block it. I would block it. Can't yeah. happen. Yeah. Well, uh, and, and good for him. You know, if he were a party in that negotiation, right. Right. You know, if, he, mm -hmm. if he were a union leader, if he were a stockholder, if, uh, he were a hired manager of the corporation, then at least he would have a dog in the fight and his voice would be interesting. Um, none of those things are true and therefore his voice is not interesting. The real problem is not merely that his voice is disinterested, but that he doesn't seem to realize that his voice is disinterested. Mm -hmm. He thinks that it's his job to express an opinion on this. And, you know, we all have opinions and, you know, good for us. You know, I may like your show and, you know, you may like my haircut, but that doesn't mean that it's our right to impose our opinions on each other. Mm. And what frightens me is not the fact that he has an opinion. We all do. Right. Sure. You know, sure. I might have an opinion on whether the 
corporation should have negotiated harder or the union should have or someone should have backed down or maybe the contract is written wrong. By the way, I haven't read the contract. So, you know, I don't think most of your viewers have. Right. So we need to step a little bit carefully here. We all may have an opinion on that. The problem is that Robert Kennedy is running for president. And that suggests that everything that comes out of his mouth, as well as mine, needs to be interpreted in the context of potential public policy, right? Um, you know, before I registered with the FEC and announced that I was seeking my party's nomination, you know, it might have been funny for me to say, I, I think everyone ought to wear a, a dark uh, blazer when appearing on Brian's uh, podcast. But, you know... Now, if I say it, I need to be careful. Something silly like that, nobody would really care. But when you start weighing in on, you know, offering your opinion on something that plenty of people around the world would say as a matter of public policy, boy, I got to tell you, it sure sounds like he would impose his will if he had the opportunity to do so. That frightens me very much. Yeah, already. The distinction is becoming clear between a good government, a proponent of good government, like we're saying RFK is, and a principled libertarian. So that's interesting. And that's abstracting away from the fact that uh, would society be better off if that negotiation had gone slightly differently or, or quite a bit differently? Well, now that's an interesting debate, I suppose, but... Would society be better off with a government that would impose the will of politicians, uh, never setting aside the negotiation that takes place between private sector institutions? No, absolutely. That is the more interesting, more important debate. And interestingly, uh, the more clear debate. Our world is not made better by a government that imposes its will. Uh, that is just a different flavor of socialism, many flavors of which we have seen uh, to disastrous results around the world. So this is like the Tao Te Ching part of libertarianism, which is to say it's best to just let things happen. And you don't need this centralized force, the state, to guide it. Just let things happen. And even bad things will happen. Suffering will happen. But it'll actually be at minimal levels if you just let things happen. People do make bad decisions. There's no question about that. Uh, I'm sure there will be people who come on your show who don't wear a dark blazer, and they should. But uh, those are mistakes that everyone is going to have to make on their own. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So continuing this theme of using RFK as a prism or a lightning rod to kind of bounce this discussion off of, something you hear him talking about a lot is ballot access. And I believe that you libertarian presidential candidates are seriously uh, enmeshed in this conversation. Can you please kind of give me the background, what's going on with this ballot access conversation? Sure, it's a complex uh, conversation in its totality, but I can give you the big picture. Uh, and uh, RFK is uh, an interesting point of reference. Uh, I'm not sure he's the perfect foil uh, for our conversation because you know, he was not nearly as interested when he was a registered Democrat. He probably still is a registered Democrat, but it, he, he, he only became interested once he realized that he personally has a ballot access problem. Now it's a big problem for the United States, right? Uh, I'm sorry, where were you? 
a year ago before you realize that this is a mess. The problem we have in the United States, one of the many problems we have in the United States, politically speaking, is that the Republican Party, the Democratic Party control the legislatures in every state, of course, uh, and therefore control how it is that individuals gain uh, ballot access, which is to say how they get their names on the ballots that get put in front of uh, voters, right? Uh, for every type of election from the school board to uh, governor and, and federal elections as well. This is all controlled by state law and all controlled by Republicans and Democrats. So what they have done is they've set up a system and, uh, you know, good for them for being, uh, you know, self-interested uh, corporations that don't give a damn about uh, advancing democracy. You know, uh, if I had the cojones to be that selfish, I, I suppose I would uh, admire them on a, on a whole nother level. The, the idea is they've set up this system whereby which if you're a member of one of those parties, you can uh, virtually automatically gain access as long as you have your party's nomination. Mm -hmm. If you're not one of those two parties, if you're not what they call a, a major party, major party, right? You can gain access by qualifying as a major party, but that means you need to get a certain percentage of votes. Every state is different. Every state has different rules. Okay. I, I need to hasten to add that. You can either pay certain fees, raise a certain number of signatures, or get a certain voting percentage in the previous election, all of which are virtually impossible unless you have regular ballot access from cycle to cycle to cycle to cycle. And they lock that out by saying, you're not a major party. Therefore, you have to go through the hoops every cycle, mm. right? Mm-hmm. And so sometimes you're going to be on the ballot. Sometimes your party is not going to be on the ballot. You never have an opportunity to gain uh, momentum, uh, much less awareness in the mind of the American voter. So they've really set up a system whereby which uh, these two parties are highly advantaged relative to anybody trying to create uh, a robust third party presence. The Libertarian Party is, as, as you probably are, are well aware, by far uh, the third largest party in the United States. I say by far in the sense that we're much smaller than the Republican and Democratic Party and much larger than whatever it is that's in fourth, fifth, and sixth places. Mm. You know, people like the Green Party and the Forward Party and the Progressive and the, the Communist Party and whatever else you, you have going on. Mm. So we struggle to get 50, ballot, 50 state ballot access uh, every year, whereas for anybody else, they wouldn't even have a shot. Uh, but for the Republicans and the Democrats, they have it automatically. So kudos to those in the libertarian community who have got, gotten the ball this far. So the question A lot of is, work. Right. And I'm, I'm, I want to be cognizant of that as I ask this next question, which is what what is the most effective, realistic thing that you guys can do from here as a libertarian community to, to solve this problem? My view is that, well, you know, it is a chicken and egg problem. You need to gain awareness, gain votes, to gain ballot access, uh, to continue that cycle, and eventually 
uh, gain representation in state legislatures in order to open up the legislation in this area to allow third parties to, to compete. And by that, I mean third, fourth, fifth, and sixth. This is a ballot, not just for the Libertarian Party, but for mm -hmm. you know a system that would include more than just the, the duopoly parties. I do think that the next step in getting that cycle rolling is a very robust uh, political campaign at the national level led by a presidential candidacy. And this is the reason why the campaign that we are running is designed to do a few things uh, significantly differently than what you've seen from the Libertarian Party in the past. We are building a campaign uh, that is uh, large, professional, mm -hmm. that maintains a tremendous amount of credibility. We mm -hmm. go to great lengths to back up all of our policy proposals because we believe that there is a threshold of credibility that the American public, donors, and the media will expect to be cleared once we secure the nomination for us to be competitive. Having said that, that's only half of the, the story. The other half of the story is that, speaking of things that we need to do differently than libertarian campaigns have in the past, we need to run on a, a very differentiated platform that leaves no mistake that we are completely different from Republicans and Democrats. As many of your viewers may know, I'm running on a platform that we call uh, the Gold New Deal. Your people can see it at goldnewdeal.org to the extent to which they're curious about it. It is a collection of some of the most transformational ideas in libertarian thought. The reason this is so important, two big reasons. Number one, to cleave hard edges against Republicans and Democrats. We need to make it clear that we are a third choice. Mm -hmm. We're not just similar to Democrats or similar to Republicans. Uh, I think that's the wrong strategy. Uh, I think it's the wrong tactic. I think that most Americans have some libertarian streak inside themselves that they wouldn't characterize as such, right? They wouldn't call it libertarianism. I don't think most Americans can spell libertarianism. They don't know that there is a libertarian party. But our values better align with most Americans than the values of the Republican or Democratic parties. Mm -hmm. And so we need to starkly brand ourselves in our own context so that people can find us, identify with us, and understand that we're a very different choice. And the other reason it's so important is because it is the correct way to brand our party. Our party has a, a brand awareness, a brand value that's really approximately zero. Hmm. Most Americans don't know there's a libertarian party to the extent to which they do. They don't know what it means, what it stands for. Mm -hmm. They don't know what libertarianism is all about. I lay this squarely at the feet of our past national campaigns that have failed to brand us in the minds of voters, voters and donors and, and the media as well. So we need to, to, differentiate from the other parties just for the sake of clearly branding our party. So I think that that putting out there a real principled, uh, a real libertarian, uh, hard-edged, if you will, policy platform is important for 
the strategy of reaching as many people as possible and gaining a lot of votes, mm -hmm. but it's also the right thing to do in terms of branding us correctly for the sake of the down ballot candidates, for the sake of candidates in the future. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How libertarian of you to be interested not only in the Libertarian Party's position with ballot access, but doing it for everybody. That fits with the theme of libertarianism. We're not just protecting ourselves. We're doing it for the principle of it. Uh, that is important. And of course, a big piece of what it is that we're interested in doing is loosening up this duopolistic hold that the Republican and Democratic parties have on American politics. We believe it'll be good for, for our party. It'll be good for our philosophy to spread. But you're right. Uh, Ten times more important than that is loosening up for everyone to participate, for everyone to to have their voices heard. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's fantastic. And I will say, as you know, I'm not tooting your horn here, but you've done an outstanding job with this branding around professionality and credibility. You're so measured. I was thinking yesterday, measured Mike. That's kind of how I associate Mike. Measure, <laughs> he's very measured, but it's a compliment. It's, an, it's a tr tremendous compliment. You know, you're running I with several that. other people. Just, I'll use it as an opportunity now to talk about. Tell me a little bit about the uh, competition, your friends that you're running with against. I saw on Twitter that you guys recently had a debate in Georgia. Is that right? Yes. And uh, before that, uh, Florida. Before that, Arizona. Uh, and the there you are, Iowa and next week in Alabama. Uh, so there you are with these guys and look, they all had suits on, but you look like the only one who actually had experience wearing a suit. Um, <laughs> what is it like? Tell me a little bit about, take me on the trail for a minute. How are these people? What's it like? Uh, it's a lot of fun if you have the right attitude. I suspect if you had the wrong attitude, it would be frustrating and, uh, annoying. And uh, I'm not going to lie to you, being on the road and traveling a great deal for anybody has its moments, right? When sure. uh, you wonder exactly whether, you know, that's the right flight and whether this is the right way to, to, to go mm -hmm. about this. But with the right attitude, it's actually a really wonderful experience. The opportunity to get out and meet libertarians, uh, Americans who are not libertarians, is, is tremendously rewarding, being able to spread the message. Yeah, sometimes you get pushback, sometimes you get into some discussions that we call arguments. But on the whole, uh, it is extremely rewarding to see that people are open uh, to our messages. The other thing that's been a, a real joy is to see that we do, you, you mentioned the other candidates, we do have uh, five other candidates, uh, six of us in total, who I view as uh, quite credible by the standards of past campaigns, past presidential cycles. I think each one is terrific in his mm -hmm. own way. Right. You know, Joshua Smith is a, a young man with a young family who characterizes himself as just a blue collar guy. But the truth of the matter is that he's quite a sophisticated thinker and communicator. Mm -hmm. uh, he's down to earth, but his message is... Uh, is not only spot on, but at times quite ethereal when he talks about getting the government off of his back. And, you know, we've got guys like uh, Jacob Hornberger, who has been uh, a very professional thought leader for literally decades in, in our party, who cuts a very hard edge against anything that is not the most principled libertarian message. 
and I credit him for doing so. And, and to be honest, he helps keep the rest of us honest as well, because we all know if you stray from libertarian principle, Jacob will come after you. And that's, mm. uh, that's a good thing to have uh, on our team. And then you've got guys like uh, Michael Rechtenwald, who's mm -hmm. relatively new to the Libertarian Party, but certainly not new to the idea of uh, spreading uh, his his thoughts, uh, including the last several years as a, a Libertarian. He's done a tremendous amount of work in academic settings. He's been on mm -hmm. big podcasts. Uh, he's published something like a dozen books. I'll probably get that number wrong. I apologize. Um, I recently uh, had the opportunity to, to buy one of his books, uh, Beyond Woke. Uh, I don't think it's his most famous work, but I got to tell you, um, and I don't say this lightly, he is a beautiful writer. Mm -hmm. uh, his stuff is, is mm -hmm. really tremendous. I mean, it's a, it's a real joy to read. And right. I don't think you would hear me say that about too much uh, philosophy or economics. Uh, for mm. you know, I'm a big Milton Friedman fan, right? But I, I don't think a whole lot of people would say Milton's writing was beautiful. Right. Uh, it was smart. It was great. And then we've got Lars Mapstead, mm -hmm. um, who is uh, a guy who was a, a wildly successful entrepreneur. He made a lot of money uh, by learning how to. Uh, market digitally online and building platforms to provide services. Uh, an uber smart guy who I think has learned the hard way how difficult it is, you know, to be an entrepreneur in the United States, wildly successful at doing so, and learned the dark side of the government trying to involve itself in your business uh, along the way. He's a, a very fun guy. I've really enjoyed getting to know Lars, and he's played a big role in the campaign. Uh, Chase Oliver is a young man. Um, maybe some of your listeners wouldn't, you know, Chase is uh, in his late 30s. I think maybe he recently turned 40. So that may not sound terribly young to some of your audience. He's uh, a little younger than most of the rest of us, of course. Um, but he is the guy who had a, a very uh, successful debate performance in uh, Georgia when running for the U.S. Senate to the extent to which he got 2% uh, of the vote, which may not sound like a, a tremendous number, but it was certainly enough to prevent uh, Raphael Warnock and uh, Herschel Walker from getting 50% of the vote themselves. They each wound up with like 49, caused them a runoff, caused them to have to go through a runoff. And, and really help put the Libertarian Party on the map uh, during those weeks when a lot of people are grumpy at having to go through that over again. But this is, you know, Chase helped make the point, this is how we need to disrupt the duopoly and force parties to take into consideration our views when the other parties realize that they need our votes to win, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? They'll have to take into consideration our philosophy. Thank you so much for taking a few minutes of our interview to talk about the cast of characters that you're running with. I really appreciate that. And for clarifying, really, that no shots were fired on my end towards any of them. Didn't mean to imply that none of them uh, were no, professional. You didn't. Yeah, yeah. But thank you for clarifying that, that they've all got their own flavors. They're like, you guys are each like a lollipop of liber libertarianism. <laughs> and you happen to be a more 
you know, on the face of it, uh, classical professionalism and credibility, which I think is really working, uh, frankly. Um, but but thank you for for telling Thanks me about that. Yeah, I know, hundred percent. So, with a couple minutes left, Mike, so I want to be mindful of your time. Can you tell me what it means to be anti-war? Because this seems to be a huge component of libertarianism. And as as I get a little older and start paying attention more to world events. You start to, and especially with what happened with our three soldiers killed in Jordan by a drone, you get that instant reaction. You want to, there's a human element of a revenge, bloodlust. So what do you say? What does it mean to be anti-war? Surely it doesn't mean there's no place ever for military action. So what does it mean? It means to the extent to which possible minding your own business, but it also means a recognition that uh, to the extent possible, is a much, much greater extent than your federal government representing the United States is able to, uh, to recognize. It is simply not true that the foreign policy of the United States aligns with the values of the majority of our citizens. Most Americans would not choose a militaristic interventionist policy of the sorts that we have pursued for the past century. And that's that's a long time, right? Certainly since World War II, the United States government has taken uh, tremendous steps and spent a tremendous proportion of our gross domestic product, a, a tremendous percentage of, of our income as individuals on projecting military strength, maintaining military hegemony around the world this has not been in our interest. I recognize that it has been in the interest of the politicians who try to control the world events, who try to garner as much power to themselves as possible. I get that, right? You know, if, if you lined up all the politicians in the United States who have an influence in this area, you'd be able to look at them and say, I get it. It's in your interest but it's not in ours. It does not align with our values. And it is not in our interest in the sense that strategically speaking, objectively, empirically speaking, our policy has not achieved success in a long-term strategic sense that aligns with our interests. It is not true that it, our policy has delivered success. We were an abject, robust, huge failure in Iraq, huge failure in Afghanistan. There are not examples around the world where the American people would point and say, that military intervention was a good idea. That war was a good idea. Mm. Even though it cost us billions of dollars and thousands of lives lost. And by the way, in Iraq, it wasn't billions of dollars. It was trillions mm. of dollars. When you look at Iraq and Afghanistan, it wasn't thousands of lives lost. It was millions of lives lost. Mm -hmm. This does not align with America's interests as citizens. It doesn't align with our values in terms of how our nation was, was set up or how people feel today. It has not achieved success. It has not made us safer. We are in a state of virtually perpetual war for the last several decades and for 
the great majority of time since World War II, we have been at war. We are not safer. Our economy is drained of resources. Our own pocketbooks are drained of resources. And we have not achieved a world in which we are at peace, uh, in which economic growth can flourish. Things have not gone our way. It's, it's time for a change. It was time for a change a long time ago, just based on values. But now, surely, objectively, empirically speaking, mm-hmm. right. it has to be recognized that the United States is ready for a, a change, of course. The data has caught up with the values. The data have caught up with the values. That is well said. I'm going to write that down and use it and not give you credit. Please do. Oh, that'll be a first step towards me repaying you for your time. Um, (laughs) Let's close out on this subject, the Federal Reserve and CBDC. Another, we could also tie this back to Kennedy. He, I believe, came out recently, you know, saying that he would oppose a CBDC. Presumably you and all libertarian candidates would as well. Can you tell me a little bit about that and what your plan is for the Federal Reserve? Sure. Speaking of data, having caught up to our values, I, the, the Federal Reserve in, in general, as an institution, uh, needs to be retired lock, stock, and barrel. But I think it's important to look at each piece of it, uh, not only because we can retire it piecemeal over time to actually get the job done, but I think it illustrates the variety of reasons why we need to to live without a Federal Reserve system. And first of all, I should point out that getting rid of the Fed doesn't mean getting rid of the dollar. The dollar is the only uh, reserve currency in the world. you could argue that the the euro is in second place, but it's uh, such a distant second that for all practical purposes, the dollar has a, a hegemonic position as the world's reserve currency, uh, certainly. And we don't want to undermine that. We want to make the dollar stronger. Empirically speaking, not just in terms of values, the way, the nature of monetary policy in the United States, the way it is conducted, is dopey, it, it's counter to our values, and it doesn't work. The way it works now is the Federal Reserve System locks 18 people in a room every six weeks and basically asks what their mood is, and they vote on whether to make money tighter or looser in the United States. Just on the face of it, that ought to give anyone pause, right? <laughs> you know, if I told you that's how we're going to set milk prices, you would say that's dopey right? The fact that that's how we set the the price of money in terms of interest rates, wow, it's not only dopey, but it's of uber importance. Empirically speaking, the Fed conducting monetary policy this way has not been able to mitigate the boom-bust cycle. Uh, Empirically speaking, research has shown that we would be better off running a rules-based system off of a laptop where we just got rid of the Fed and controlled the amount of money in our system just to match our growth in, uh, in the economy, you know, just set our money stock at an annual growth rate of 2%. And that way, you know, if, if you saw any inflation or deflation, the idea would be to target zero inflation. Right now, the Fed targets 2% inflation, which is an ethical problem, by the way. 
we should be targeting zero inflation. And to the extent to which why? Because as you inflate every year, you steal from the American people. That whole thing. Well, that's exactly right, and do so unevenly, right? Mm. It's the it's the bottom ninety percent of Americans who get ripped off. It's the top ten percent who are able to survive it because they have assets that uh, inflate with uh, our inflated uh, currency. Mm. So it's you know, the bottom end of the American spectrum in terms of socioeconomic uh, mm. status that really gets hammered. And that's part of the ethical problem. And it's just one sort of gray area, underhanded method of taxing the American people to keep the federal government going. So it's an ethical problem, but it's also an empirically demonstrable problem that it doesn't handle the boom bust cycle and that we'd be better off with just a, a series of rules run by a computer and not you know, asking these people what their mood is every six weeks. The other problem with the Fed, of course, is that it regulates banking institutions in a way that is also not in our interest. It allows these institutions to make mistakes and get bailed out. Uh, the Fed regulates them in a way that suggests to the world that they're safe even when they're not. These people, would, these institutions would be better off getting rid of Fed regulation. Most of them can. Uh, Fed regulation is typically optional now, but the biggest institutions have to be regulated by the Fed. They'd be better off just hiring an outside auditor like other businesses do, by the way, and getting rid of the Fed because the Fed is the institution that bails them out when things go wrong. And of course, the Fed feels obliged to do so because they were the regulator in the first place. So that sets up perverse incentives for these institutions to take great risks. And this, in turn, contributes to the boom-bust cycle instead of mitigating it. So we need to get rid of the Fed for that reason. And then the third reason is exactly what you pointed out, which is that the Fed just can't seem to leave us the hell alone. It's talking about competing in the cryptocurrency markets by issuing its own blockchain-based currency, which would bias the market against the currencies that already exist, like Bitcoin and Ethereum and, and others, we want the market to determine which one of these currencies is most effective, most useful. We want the markets to determine how the smart economy in the United States is going to develop. We don't want the Fed to control it, to predict it, to set up regulation, to, to guide it. We want markets to make these decisions. And of course, from a libertarian perspective, never mind the objective empirics of it, mm -hmm. from a philosophical point of view, the idea that the Federal Reserve should have data on every transaction mm -hmm. you conduct, yeah. wow, uh, you don't have to be uh, you know, someone who just sits around worrying about privacy all day long to be concerned about that. That should concern every American, because as we know, the Fed would not resist calls from the Treasury Department from that data or the Justice Department for that data. It's it's truly, truly problematic giving the government that much information about your life. Yeah, no, it's interesting how, especially with especially because you're an economist, that you started with uh, the economic concern rather than the purely privacy, tyrannical, philosophical concern. It's interesting how you have both concerns there. Well, the Fed has enough problems to go around. 
Yeah. Whatever, whatever, <laughs> whatever is your favorite hobby horse of concern, the Fed is going to violate it. Yeah. It's that big. It's that powerful. It has that broad uh, scale and scope. It's a problematic institution. And of course, Brian, the Fed is one of the most politically powerful organizations in Washington. So it's a, a lot of work to get rid of it, but I've got a plan to do so. Mm. Mike, I'm going to leave it there. Thank you so much. I, I just want to be extremely uh, respectful to your time. Speaking of Thanks. big entities like the Fed that have things to do. But then you said, no, they're problematic. I said, no, I can't say it now because Mike's not problematic. But you've got a lot to do. And I'm, like I said in the beginning, truly humbled and grateful that you would take the time to talk to me again, Mike. I really appreciate it. I appreciate it very much, Brian. It's a great joy. Uh, let's do it again. I'd love to, please. Thank All you, right, sir, we'll so much. All right, we'll talk soon then. Yep. Thank you. you. Take care. Thank you, sir.